This is the Historian's Podcast, and I'm Bob Cudmore, and we welcome uh, Dave Green to the podcast. How are you doing, Dave? I feel as though I'm in for another history lesson, Bob. <laughs> I guess so, but you gave me a lesson uh, not that long ago, a column that uh, ran on uh, focus on history in the Daily Gazette and also in the story behind the story about luxury and employment mainstay in Fort Plain, this lingerie factory, and it was other things uh, that was in a factory building on Willett Street. But you and uh, and Mary Green went up there. And why did you go up there? We're looking for goodies. We, we call them goodies, Bob. Material needed to make uh, dresses and other types of uh, boho Clothing. Boho. I, I even use that word. But what, you mean bohemian? Is that yeah, the, yeah, boho? Yeah, something like that. <laughs> Bob, you're just not hip enough. I know. <laughs> well, anyhow, so you, you f- first off, you found good stuff up there, right? Yeah, we did. You never, you really never know. I know they had a lot of uh, industrial material, old doors and railings and things, you know, for uh, long lost projects. But sure enough, back in the corner were some goodies. And the people that run the antiques part of this building now, Fort Plain Antiques and Salvage, are Chris and Julie Takas. And I guess they've been there for some some time. Yeah, they looked as though they did a pretty good business. Yeah. And the a building has been various things. Did you see any evidence of the of the pool a store or factory that's that's there. It's still in operation, you said. Yeah. Uh, no, that must have been in yet another set. They have about uh, the salvage uh, people have about half of the building. Okay. And the other half, I guess, you don't access easily. Okay. And uh, well, I believe that uh, Robert Hancock is still there with his glimmer glass swim spas and pools in this historic um, factory building in Fort Plain. And I imagine the people in Fort Plain are glad to see that the building has uh, found use after the uh, underwear plant ended. And best guess I had on that from, uh, actually it was from Mr. Hancock, who bought the building in year 2000. He said it was you know, not in use, uh, but he believes that they stopped all their underwear production in 1999. But at one time, as uh, Minden town historian Rob Carter told me, he said it, it seemed like the whole town was employed at uh, Luxury. I think at one time. Yeah. Uh, Rob Carter, the Mindentown historian and little uh, geography point. Uh, this is another lesson, I guess, Dave. Uh, Minden is the town, and within the town is the village of uh, Fort Plain. Why? It's not the town of Fort Plain, I'm not sure, but it's the town of, town of Minden, according to Mr. Carter. But that was, uh, uh, yeah, that was a great tip, and it became a very, uh, um, in, to me anyway, it sounds like I'm bragging, Dave. Uh, interesting column. Go ahead, Brian. Because uh, you never know. You know, maybe I've had material things wrong with the uh, article, and by this point in time, maybe I've received uh, a chastisement for some of the things I got wrong. But um, that's called input. That is. It's called input. And also another piece that. By the time we are on with this uh, podcast, we'll be uh, out at the probably as a column in Focus on History and a story behind the story is a piece I uh, took or was inspired to write uh, from an employee publication from Amsterdam, New York, and the Mohawk Carpet Mill. Uh, the Mohawk Carpet Mill, and we may have uh, talked about other issues of this publication before. Uh, everything about Mohawk, in a way, in those days was pretty 
by today's standards, politically incorrect because, you know, Mohawk is the name of a nation of Native Americans. But in terms of Amsterdam, it was a company that made carpet and they still make carpet under that brand. And so their company publication day was called Tomahawk. Hmm, I I get your point. Yeah, Tomahawk. And that succeeded... The first, uh, pre- an earlier publication called the Mohawk Courier, but Tomahawk, which uh, came out, I've, most of the uh, Tomahawks I've seen come from the late 40s into the early 50s. Uh, it was a, a magazine format, you know, kind of slick uh, with uh, lots, of, lots of pictures. It says here, it was published and copyrighted 1950 by the Communications Branch Personnel Department Mohawk Carpet Mills, Amsterdam, New York. Ezra Pugh, the editor. A magazine layout by uh, Ernest Dreyer. And the art editor was uh, Joseph Biscom. It was a pro- you know professional job. I mean, the, there were people in the public relations department that, that put this out. W- one thing, and this wasn't in the column, which had to do with the feature story in the Tomahawk, that particular issue, which was May of 1950, they were starting having, having you know, most of us have, have worked for corporations over time. They were starting uh, with that, that edition of the Tomahawk to ask for for input, as you call it today. And the, on the back of the magazine, in big, bold letters, it says, what would you like to know? Hmm. What would you like to know? No, we need to narrow that down <laughs> You are invited, it writes, and again, you realize their audience of the workers at Mohawk Carpet in Amsterdam, New York, 1950. Mohawk Carpet no longer in Amsterdam, New York. In fact, uh, they don't make the carpet anymore in America. Uh, first they moved to Georgia, and then they moved the production offshore, but the, the corporation is still down in, I think, Dalton, Georgia. But anyway, they, they wrote in 1950, you're invited to contribute your questions to this new feature beginning in the June issue. We set it up to give everybody a chance to ask questions about our company's operations and policies. Sounds like trouble to me, Dave. (laughs) (laughs) Asking a question about how the company operates. Uh, They they say, makes no difference where you work or what your job is here. You probably have a question from time to time. Your question will be answered through the new department in Tomahawk, what would you like to know? Contribute your questions. To be really interesting to everybody, all questions should be about Mohawk, its policies, operations, and activities. If it's a question your foreman or office supervisor can answer, we suggest you ask him first. Notice it was a him there. It was not him or her. Yeah, all of this is incorrect, Ben. <laughs> yes. But if it isn't, you may send your question to Tomahawk in the main office or ask us in person when you see us around the mill. I guess the Tomahawk editor was well known. There are no forms to write on, no coupons to sign. And maybe it's already occurred to you what a lot of employees would be thinking about this or wondering if this is the case. But I'll, I'll get to the point. I think I'll be able to read it here. Just put it in the suggestion box and we'll see to it the question reaches the right party for an answer. And in parentheses even, it says, if you don't care to, you don't have to sign your name. Uh, I see. <laughs> There's the... <laughs> and, and all of this is translated into privacy on the Internet, Bob. 
That's true. That's true. Now that we right, they would put in privacy on yeah. the internet. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, and you're talking early days of what do they say these days? HR. HR, right? Human resources and public relations. Um, Think about that one, Bob. Human resources. Yes. We yes. keep them all over there in that room. Yeah. Well, I th- one of the things I always enjoyed about the comic strip, Dilbert. I think they actually used the evil HR department. <laughs> Because, you know, the, the whole business about being in HR is you can never tell the truth. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it wouldn't, you know, it's not you're being bad or something. It's just it's not going to work, you yeah. know. Yeah. You got to. Well, anyhow. They, they they lend you a brick wall and you can pound your head against it if you want. But in Tomahawk, the magazine put out for the Mohawk employees, May of 1950, there's a man on the cover. And you think, I yes, his name is Herb Breen. He's an older gentleman, doesn't even work for Mohawk, and he is playing a tuba. Yeah, good start. <laughs> playing a tuba. And the feature article is called Music in Their Lives, and it's a story about the Mohawk Mills Band, which I've written about a number of times, in fact, as recently as last year. But this was so interesting to me, I thought it needed at the very least another Um, focus on history column, because this is a real snapshot of a point in time, 1950. I mean, the Mohawk Mills Band started in 1927. We, again, formed by the employees, but with the backing of the company and with financial support uh, from, from the company or the owners of the mill, the Shuttleworths. And all through the 1930s, it had existed, and through the 40s, and now it's 1950. And in the 40s, for example, uh, they they did um, concerts for you know, the, the troops, or they went around and, and performed in that way. And there's a picture of the band from the 19 in the 1950 issue, and they have these snazzy uniforms, Dave. Snazzy uh, uniforms. I like the word snazzy. Yeah, and it kind of reminds me of the Music Man. You know, <laughs> they're all dressed up, and you know, and also. What was fascinating, one of the things fascinating to me about the Mohawk Mills Band or the Mohawk Mills Chorus or the Mohawk Mills Softball Team or the Mohawk Mills whatever, or any company like that in those days, is that people appeared to have the time and spent the time doing this. You know what I mean? Well, there was less there was less electronic interference, such as your iPhone. Exactly. And even television, I suppose you know, posed that kind of interference. Yeah, right. You only had yeah. three channels. Right. We only had three channels. But, you know, these guys, and they were all guys in the Mohawk Mills band, um, went and practiced, you know, sometimes, I think, they said two, three times a week. And what I have took out of the article for the current, um, or a fairly recent now, Focus on History column was the story of the tuba player, the man named Herb Breen, who I just thought comes across as a really colorful character. He was 70 years old in 1950, and he played tuba in the Mohawk Mills band. And it turns out he started, uh, he was born in England in the late 19th century. He was six years old when his family and he came over Ultimately settled in Amsterdam, 
Herb Breen didn't work in the carpet mill. He was more or less kind of a plumber, or he worked in appliances and pipe fitting and things like that. Most of his employed life, he was with the John Larrabee Company, which was a um, hardware store, and they sold appliances. And Dave, they sold American Flyer trains at Christmas time. Nice. Yeah. And it was an iconic store in downtown Amsterdam. Again, I've written about Larrabee's, and he worked there. And according to a little picture of Herb Breen in the, in the magazine, he was a refrigeration service man there. I don't exactly know whether that means he repaired refrigerators. It's the only thing I can think of. Mm, I don't know. Something like that. Uh, but he had, because I, in addition to this article, I was able to locate his obituary and his death story in the uh, Amsterdam Recorder. Because Mr. Breen, he was 70 in 1950. He lived until 1962. He was, uh, um, let's see, 82. And he was so well known as a musician that they, the recorder wrote uh, you know, a news story about his passing, you know, uh, showing him again with his tuba. But he, he's, as I say, quite a character. So let me just quote you from the beginning of the article in, in Tomahawk. Uh, Herb Breen, the oldest member, and to get his story, we d- attended a rehearsal of uh, the band. The band used to rehearse in what they called the McClary Cafeteria at the Mohawk Upper Mill. And we later chatted with him over coffee and sandwiches. I have to turn the page here because we're doing this in real time, as they say. Come to think of it, he uh, began, leaning back in his chair and lighting up a cigar. Again, something we probably wouldn't do today. He says, come to think of it, in all the years I've been with the band, never became much of a musician, never saved a dollar of my pay, But one thing I will say, and that is this. I've had a wonderful chance to do some clowning and have a few laughs. As a matter of fact, he continued, in the two times I've been married, I was playing in the band each time I met my wife. Must be that uniform that gets them. But whether it's the uniform or not, I've always gotten a kick out of being in a band. That is, ever since I started carrying a drum for a fellow I knew who was in a in a drum corps. I looked looked up, as he said, his obituary, and I don't have the in front of me, but his first wife, he'd married in the 20s, and she died in 1927, and then he married his second wife in 1929, and she survived him, and they had uh, one child together, and she'd had a couple of, uh, couple of other children. But Herb Breen just loved playing in music. You know, his job, I think, you know, as the refrigerator mechanic or the pipe fitter or whatever, was was kind of secondary to his interest in playing in bands. Isn't it always? Yeah, well, it could be. You're absolutely right. And there was one thought that he had or that he expressed I thought was kind of poetic. He he said something about, well, I I can't find it here in in the copy just yet. But he had played with a bunch of bands. He started in the late 1800s playing with a cornet band in which he played the cornet. And I was really impressed with the multitude of bands that existed in Amsterdam. And after the cornet band broke up, he played with a 
Hegeman Band. He played with the Hegeman Boys Band. He played with Minch's Orchestra Band. And then he, he played with a band called the 13th Brigade, which was sponsored by a fraternal organization called the Pythians. I don't know if you, your town there in upstate New York, Dave, had a Pythians Lodge. And... I can't say that, Bob. <laughs> Me either. But their band was was very good and was was reorganized a couple of times, but it won uh, national competitions. And here's the quote I was looking for. And again, it goes from one page to another. As the band goes older, said Herb Breen, as the band grows older, it seems to me the boys kind of go into a slump and have to start over again. It was one of those starts that brought us together at the Shuttleworth Cafeteria, that's the Mohawk Carpet Mill, in 1927, and once again, we had a good band. So I thought that was kind of telling, as they say. Everything in life, Bob, need to start over again. Yeah. You, you run out of steam. Run out of steam, so you, you, you do something. Well, anyway, so that's the story of Herb Breen, or some of it, and it's by now, as people are hearing this a podcast. Uh, by now, it's been uh, in the newspaper and done a story behind the story. We'll be back with another tale. Uh, Dave Green and Bob Cudmore with you on uh, the Historians podcast. Do want to mention our fund drive, which is underway right now. The easiest way to donate is to go online to www.gofundme.com forward slash historians 2018. If you'd rather not donate um, with your credit card online, you can send me a, a donation in the mail. Make the check out to me, Bob Cudmore, and send to Bob Cudmore, 125 Horseman Drive, Scotia, New York, 12302. Well, I think I might want to spend the last few minutes of the program, Dave, talking about ice skating. Were you an ice skater? No, 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 no. I wasn't. That's for no, sure. No, no. <laughs> In fact, but it's hard to. Well, Bob, any, Bob cut more on ice skates. Not, a, not a good thought. No, I'm going to work. That's right. Even on my feet now, it's a little tough. But, but just walking, not on ice necessarily. Mm-hmm. Well, back in May, I did a, a column uh, which was headlined William Curry's popular Erie Canal skating rink. One of the side benefits of construction of the Erie Canal in the 19th century was that Governor DeWitt Clinton's ditch was a dandy place for ice skating when the water froze during the winter months. You know, it occurs to me, Dave, that Brian Stratton, who now is the head of the canal for the state, the Canal Commission or Commissioner or something like that, they've been having these forums on what to do with the Erie Canal. Or, or all the canals. I wonder if ice skating could be done in the, well, I don't know. It's a great idea, but much too risky. Though. Yeah, it could be. And the thing, especially with the, they actually used the Mohawk River, but this was when they had a ditch. It was, you know, more placid uh, than the river is. So anyway, just the thought, if Brian Stratton's listening, maybe, maybe he'll pursue it. In 1887, this is back in uh, the Mohawk Valley, John Burns was granted permission to have a skating rink at the Port Jackson Basin on the canal. The next year, the uh, city of Amsterdam, 
north of Port Jackson, annexed the Erie Canal Village. Um, again, it's a little history lesson. Uh, Port Jackson was the it was originally a separate village. It's now the south side of the city of Amsterdam, and Port Jackson's where the canal went, hence the name Port Jackson. But soon after the um, the skating rink rights were being auctioned off, the city of Amsterdam annexed the village of Port Jackson. As was the canal, the canal basin was man-made and gave boats the ability to maneuver and dock in warm weather months and provided a good expanse for skating in the winter. In 1893, the newspapers reported that the annual fight for possession of the canal basin is already on. P. Donovan and W. L. Hammond were contending for the skating contract. In 1897, the firm of Noonan and Curry flooded the canal basin for skating and would do so for the next 20 years. They got the contract and they hung on to it. Noonan and Curry, don't you know, was a livery stable, a combination rent-a-car and taxi service of the horse-drawn area. I mean, think about that day. that You, you, used to, you couldn't call it cab, but you could call a livery. Diversification, Bob. I think it was. The man that apparently had more to do with the ice skating uh, than the other partner in w- Noonan and Curry was, was Curry, William Curry was born in 1857 in Little Falls. He'd come to Amsterdam with his family as a small child and lived on High Street, north of the canal and north of the Mohawk River. He was active in Republican politics. Who knows? Maybe that's why it was feasible for him to get this uh, license to operate the skating rink. In 1900, Mr. Curry was considering holding a race between an Amsterdam champion named Thomas, don't know his first name, or actually I don't know if that is his first name, and a skater from Gloversville. The Gloversville leader reported that skaters in the region thought there was considerable money to be made in defeating Thomas. In 1902, and I I like how this particular headline sounded, Fred Hoffman, the boy wonder of Cohoes, I mean, this was way before the Batman comic books, Dave. And this guy was called the Boy Wonder, Mm -hmm. Fred Hoffman. And Rensselaer County champion Peter Connors took part in a two-mile race in Amsterdam before a big crowd. The Boy Wonder prevailed. Carbonelli's band, there's another band for you. Don't know if our man Herb Breen ever played in Carbonelli's band, but Carbonelli's band entertained and a carnival was held after the race. In December 1902, the newspapers printed the rules for Curry's Canal Basin skating rink. They had lots of rules there, Dave. I, I'm, I'm back on the thought of the tuba player showing up. <laughs> well, he might. That's true. The tu- a tuba on ice yeah. might, might be a little scary. It seems to me, but um, yeah, we're getting a little convoluted here, Bob. I think so. Um, but let me see. Oh, the the rules of the canal basin: long skates and skinny sticks. I'm sorry, not skinny sticks, shinny sticks, uh, which apparently were. I think you were right both times. It's true. Um, they were you. They were like shorter hockey sticks. Were not allowed. 
during regular skating sessions, no racing, no speeding, also positively banned boisterous actions and profane language. We need to go back to that kind of language. That would be nice. The way it's written. That would be nice. That would be nice. Uh, That year, Mr. Curry held a skating carnival on Christmas afternoon and evening. In 1904, the Erie Basin Skating Rink advertised it was open every afternoon and evening with a carnival each Wednesday and Saturday. Curry used an old houseboat as a warming hut. It was towed to the skating rink each year from its summer resting place near Fort Hunter. Curry, the skating rink man, has had a hard time of it this winter, wrote the recorder in 1907. Changeable weather kept him from opening the rink until the end of January. By 1909, he had installed a phone at the rink, technology, and again was open Christmas Day with music, by the Colonial Band. The rink was also used in 1916. I don't know why this occurs to me, but today Walmart, for example, can be open on Christmas Day. But back then in old South Amsterdam, it was the uh, skating rink. But the skating rink's days were numbered. The Erie Canal was closed by 1918 as the new Barge Canal was put into the banks of the Mohawk River. William Curry died in December 1923. A 1944 Recorder Nostalgia column by Frank Engel recalled the Erie Canal Basin Skating Rink when prizes were awarded not to the fastest skaters, but to the most graceful skaters. The site of the old skating rink was filled in and is now the location of the Fifth Ward Memorial Park, where there's a memorial to all the soldiers from that ward who died during World War II. This story about William Curry and his skating rink was uh, researched by Amsterdam historian and postcard collector Jerry Snyder, who has what's called a real photo postcard. In other words, I guess a postcard made from a real photo depicting the skating rink. The postcard shot shows tastefully attired women skaters lined up wearing coats and even some fancy hats. A young boy is off to the left and one man is in front of the women. Was that man William Curry? Perhaps, maybe, we'll just never know. And thanks to Jerry Snyder for that information. Jerry and Rob Von Hasselen were the founders of an organization that's done a great deal for uh, work on Amsterdam uh, history. Uh, That is the Historic Amsterdam League. This past summer, or it was in the month of June, I believe, they had their one of their neighborhood tours. I was sorry, couldn't go on it because uh, I was up at the American Revolution Conference. Happened on the same weekend. But this year, they toured the northern neighborhoods and also uh, Market Hill, uh, which is one of uh, Amsterdam's several hills. And they have uh, booklets that they uh, put out. In fact, you can find all the their wares, if you will, uh, things that uh, you might be interested in getting if you're interested in Amsterdam history on uh, their website. You can simply uh, Google Historic Amsterdam League, and it might be nice to, uh, to join the organization because uh, they're 
always uh, looking for historical projects. One thing they've recently uh, got involved in or is trying to find or joining the campaign to do uh, something to re- to preserve the history, if you will, of uh, Guy Park Manor, which is a colonial uh, building that exists in Amsterdam, New York, badly damaged and uh, flooding from Hurricane Irene and uh, Tropical Storm Lee. Well, that will do it for this edition of The Historian's Podcast. Uh, you're listening to The Historian's Podcast, and I'm Bob Cudmore. <laughs> ¶¶